0: Um, my name is rosemary eldridge um, i'm with the catholic information center and i'm so excited to be here with noelle Mering and uh carrie gress to discuss their new book Theology of Home, Finding the Eternal in the Everyday. Um, If you want to learn more about these two incredible women, please um, visit the CIC website at cicdc.org or read about them in our event description below. Um, If you haven't already submitted your question, you can do so by using the YouTube chat box to your right. So let's go ahead and get started. Carrie's gonna talk first and go a little bit behind behind the scenes of the book. Carrie, why don't you go ahead and start?
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for having us. And we're so grateful to Rosemary and to Amanda for hosting us and also for the Catholic Information Center. Um, I had a baby back in February, and um, I just haven't been able to do a lot of video work during um, the quarantine. So it's I think this is the first one um, that we've done, isn't it, Noel? Um, so this is really just a fun, fun opportunity for us. Um, so Theology of Home was something that has been such a long process in coming, and um, I'm really excited to share some of the background of it with you all this evening. Um, I first, uh, probably about 15 years ago, had this experience where I had this insight that I realized that our age is really, um, in the future, it's gonna be looked at back upon as um, an era when the women just went crazy, um, where, a lot of the virtues that women have had for, you know, since the beginning of time have just been abandoned. And so as a result, um, I have been really thinking about how is it that we can, how do we bring women back? How do we transform the hearts of women? Um, because at this point we, we know from sociology, we know from science that Catholic women are actually some of the most happy women on the planet. And um, so my goal was really to try and figure out how do we evangelize them and, and restore, um, women back to this kind of healthy um, attitude. So it, it's definitely been a very long process, and I, you know, at certain points, I've just really begged God, you know, show me how it is that we can we can help women. Um, and of course, I first started thinking apologetics was the answer, and in fact, I have a PhD in philosophy, and thought, okay, this I'll be able to make logical arguments, and that will be a fantastic way to win women over. Um, and yet, I I realized very quickly that that was just really ineffective and um, was not gonna be the way to, to transform women heart, women's hearts. Um, so at one point about nine or 10 years ago, I, um, I'm good friends with Mary Lisa Carney, who is, she's featured in the movie Unplanned that um, most of us have seen, um, but her role in it is very small. But I think if, you know, talking with Mary Lisa and understanding how it is that she approached Abby Johnson and so many other women at that clinic, um, was really an, an inspiration for me to understand kind of the heart of women. Um, and she says, I, I asked her, you know, how is it that you saved so many babies? And how is it that Abby Johnson knew that she could come to you and Sean uh, when it was, um, when she had that moment where she just couldn't work at Planned Parenthood anymore? And she said, you know, I started these relationships by talking with these women. And I would just say something like, you know, offer a compliment. I love your hair, I love your handbag, I love your shoes and um you know she said it has to be sincere it wasn't something that she was was making up she said people can hear you know when you're not being honest with them um but she said that was how conversations really started that there was this kind of fundamental trust um that that was made and so that idea really stuck with me um and then i started i wrote the book that anti-mary exposed um that came out last year and in that Book, I, I really looked a lot at uh, women in our culture and how we've been influenced. And of course, um, you know, it's kind of shocking to me when I stumbled upon it, but I realized that much of our media is really controlled by kind of an, an elite group of women who are all kind of spouting the same messages, whether it's politics, um, fashion industry, Hollywood, um, magazines, on and on. It's It's really the same message. And that is that in order for women to be happy, um, children are our enemy and our husbands and men are also our enemy and we have to sort of get beyond those um, and how do we do that of course but by sterilizing ourselves or by um, through abortion um, so but looking at that big that that kind of monolithic effort that is being made by these women to, to influence us I realized that you know, why is it the magazines are still in print? They're still in print because women love to look at images, visuals of other homes. We love to look at travel, um, a great beach, you know, these visuals are very strong and and we're influenced them in so many ways. Um, And it's kind of fascinating if you think about it because magazines are still in print and yet there's not one magazine that is sort of goes against the trends that you can still buy on, on at the checkout stand. Maybe Joanna Gaines is, is probably about the only one that's out there at this point. Um, so in light of that I think um, I started thinking about certainly Mary Lisa's advice but also looking at the fact that uh, you know this is an area where Catholics have really abandoned the field. I think we've kind of just started thinking about evangelization As apologetics, and we've kind of gotten stuck in that mode. Instead of thinking, maybe we need to start with places that are that are really um, where we have some common ground, um, where such as the home, and um, you know we can start talking about things like shoes and and starting in this place where we can really create a um, a rapport and a relationship with people. Um, And all of this was really brought home to me. Back in last November, I, I was going to vote and I walked past the polling station um, or a, a stand outside the polling station of some women who were advocating for a candidate that I was not going to vote for. And one of the women said to me, um, do you need, and I was with four kids and I was very obviously pregnant. And um, she said, do you need a sample ballot so that you know how to vote? And, um, you know, of course I was about ready to just unload, uh, you know, as the ice queen, just to really say, you know, I. I think I can handle it, Um, but before anything rude came out of my mouth, the other woman said, looked at my kids, and she said, oh, I love your kids' boots, and it was this fascinating experience, because I realized in that instance that emotionally, I just, this switch was flipped. I was a totally different person on an emotional level, and I probably could have talked about that, talked about my kids' boots for about 20 minutes, but intellectually, I knew exactly what had happened, that... It, you know, this woman's question about teaching me how to vote didn't resonate at all with me, but boots went a really long way. Um, so I was fascinated by how you know how effective Mary Lisa's advice was to me in in that very moment um, that it actually works. Um, so I think that all of that was kind of all these ideas were sort of churning in in my mind as far as how do we how do we reach out to women again. and. Um, if you want to even think about how much Catholicism has sort of abandoned the marketplace, um, you know, there's 35 million Catholic women in America. It's almost the population of Canada. Um, so it's fascinating to think about, you know, we're always told oh, you, couldn't, you couldn't make money off of a magazine like that. Well, maybe you couldn't, but I think that there's a lot to be said for actually trying to populate the marketplace again with Catholic ideas. And we saw this very clearly, Noelle and I struggled with this um and and Megan as well when we were trying to find our um endorsers for the book we don't have a Joanna Gaines um we don't you know there aren't lifestyle magazines and a lot of lifestyle sites that are specifically Catholic in fact um a lot of the lifestyle sti- sites that might be sympathetic to it are also would would n- not be sympathetic to it because the fact that there's a lot of um sympathy for the LGBT um community and they don't want to offend anybody in that community so it's interesting to see just how much of a desert it really is um, between products lifestyle products Um, i think that there's some good things happening with other products in in the marketplace and catholic marketplace but it's certainly not something that is is heavy and um so it's been fun to see women respond to this book because there's nothing like it and um you know i've had some women say come to me and say you know i was in tears when i read this book because um, I just had never seen myself in a magazine. You know, so many of us will read, will flip through a magazine and we have to skip over the, all the, the birth control ads and all of the, the advertising for things that we don't like or the stories that are go against our faith. But to find a book that really hits home on so many different levels, um, I think is an important thing to helping us not feel invisible um, in the culture. And I think so many Catholic women feel that way. And there, again, there's so many of us. Um, and yet we feel so isolated because this market is just not being hit upon. Um, so all of that was sort of the background that I, I actually was on my treadmill, listening to a song about home, and it struck me that you know all of our efforts are really about trying to get our our families home, trying to get ourselves home, trying to get them home to heaven with God. That's really what every effort is that we're trying to do, and it seemed like there this was just a great opportunity to think about god's home but also how do we make our own homes um avenues to that you know our homes can be a foretaste of heaven or they can be a foretaste of hell um and this this phrase theology of home came to me um so from there that's when the book really evolved and took shape but we knew that it, it needed pictures that it needed to be illustrated that people needed to see what a, what a family looks like, what healthy Catholic women look like, um, that it, we're not, it, we're not what the, the matriarchy, like, as, like I like to um, call this elite group of women um, that, that influences us so heavily. We're not what they say we are. We are not doormats. We're not uneducated. Um, and we have joyful and abundant and beautiful lives. And so we really wanted that to come across in the pages of, of this book. So I'm gonna turn it over to Noelle now and let her just describe kind of the, the layout of this book too.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having us. And this is such a great forum to be in and we're so grateful that for all the support we've gotten from so many of you. So yeah, Carrie and I were so excited about talking about this book that we love so much, has meant so much to us. And I think what she references about sort of having this experience of a disconnect where we, saw an image of what the life was like to be having all these kids and, you know, being at home or, you know, working, but then also, you know, really valuing our home life and if, and what the life of the Catholic woman looks like. And it felt so disconnected from what our actual everyday experiences, which as Carrie was saying, was just sort of this life where you're striving to grow in love and generosity and know properly ordered family life sort of tends to be something more like a ballet where people are giving and you know there becomes this currency of love that imbues and creates this thread that bonds us as a family and it's really so joyful and beautiful and we didn't see that embodied so but what we did see which was fascinating is that there's just this huge return to the domestic arts so for example We have whole networks on television that have sprung up over the past decade that are entirely devoted to DIY or home improvement, cooking shows, um, you know, all sorts of things domestic. And simultaneously, there's been this real rise of return to kind of the domestic arts and craftsmanship and cooking. And people are interested in learning the art of pottery again and making their own bone broth. And sort of a reaction and rejection of all of the convenience food that we've been experiencing over the last 50 years. And um, it just seemed fascinating to us that there was such a huge industry and such a huge desire for these things. But still, at the same time, there was another type of disconnect, which was that there wasn't a simultaneous rise in sort of rehabilitating the role of the homemaker. And so we were looking at all these things and thinking, you know, how do we kind of connect these to these threads? Um, and you know, there's a lot of reasons for it. Obviously, like Carrie referenced, there's been a real propaganda effort to make the role of taking care of a home seem silly or less. But there's also a real reality where work at home is kind of hidden, and we don't necessarily have a measurable sense of our progress or applause at the end of the day you know, and I think we kind of were realizing that there's um, a way in which we've kind of inverted in our minds thinking that our public lives are so important and then we can kind of come home and that's less important. And then, well, then our interior life of prayer, well, that's even less important. (laughs) Whereas in reality, really needs to be flipped that, right, the hidden parts of our lives tend to carry the most gravitas. So we're trying to, you know, bridge all of these things. And so the book really was focused on how home kind of is that bridge it is something that is both this nostalgia we think about our childhood homes we think about what we had or what we didn't have but we sort of knew that we ought to have had and then we also have this longing and even you can even hear it when people talk about their dream home you know they think of this something in the future that they're longing for they're going to find a place and you want this beautiful home and i think oftentimes we're thinking we want this beautiful home because we want to live this beautiful life not that we want to necessarily have this big moment, but that we just want to kind of day in and day out, have coffee in a beautiful home and, you know, have a glass of wine with our husbands. And I think that sort of signifies this idea that it really is these small everyday parts of our lives that we want to make beautiful. And that's really what the Catholic faith allows, is that we are a faith that is not looking for some extraordinary or future kind of perfection, but we're trying to strive to find that beauty and that perfection in the small things of the day, knowing that those small things tend to be the big things. So we laid out the book kind of with this concept of remembering and also building. So to kind of bridge the past and the future, and then also um, went into the trans. So that was sort of, we laid out the theological underpinnings of it. There's so many great, you know, scriptural uh, passages about home, and Jesus refers to himself as the door, there are, uh, I'm preparing a room for you, in my father's house, so this great imagery, and I think that makes sense, right, because heaven ultimately is not going to be like your office or a mall, it's going to be a sense of home, uh, of a homecoming, uh, and, but, but God in his, um, provided, provides for us sort of this spiritual sleight of hand, where he gives us this foretaste of what our ultimate desire is, that ultimately our longing for this perfect home is really just the fact that we want to be with him. And, and I think that concept of it being about a relationship ultimately is significant. Um, I would think about when I, was, uh, when I was dating my boyfriend, now husband, I remember I sort of realized that we were going to get married at one point because I all of a sudden I realized that he was my home and my home had shifted from a place into a person. And I think that that's not an uncommon experience. A lot of people have had that type of experience. It's very universal about what the experience of falling in love is. And I think it's a signifier that that there is really some connection between love and belonging to another person and finding your home and it being kind of a place. Um, And so, you know, it's, and I think it comes back to what Carrie was talking about, even about apologetics versus complimenting the boots or the shoes or the purse, that really the way that we are reached, especially today is through friendship and how much our homes are really built around friendship, our friendship with God, our friendship with our family, but also our friendship with the with the outside world, with our neighbors, and how much our homes can be a place of evangelization. And we have this uh, great passage in the book about how you know you can't always get someone to come to church with you but you can get them to come over for dinner or to come over for a cup of coffee come have a glass of wine and how much that really that foundation of friendship gives you a right to be heard and then you can you establish some trust and then you just very naturally without you know having to even make an effort it'll almost through love of the other person that's genuine sincere and authentic begin to you know reveal Christ to, to another person. And that really is the most powerful way to approach evangelization. So, so that the next part of the book, we get into the transcendentals, things that are those intangibles that really make a home light, safety, comfort, that hospitality, that sort of balance that we need between the work and the work in the home. And then we talk about having to leave home and and of course our lady is the ultimate homemaker. So that's sort of the structure of the book. And now we can open it up and Carrie and I could just chat more.
1: Yeah, no, and I think that that is is just one of the things that is we love about this book is, you know, I've written, I guess we just finished our eighth book um, or my my eighth book um, just went to the publisher. But um, out of all of those books, um, this is really one that I can give to just about anybody because we do, everybody has a home. Um, or if they don't have a home, they need a home. Um, you know, what a crisis homelessness really is and what a, what a tribulation that is. And I, and I think even speaking to what we're going through right now with um, the virus, it's fascinating to just even think about that we have all been home and, you know, uh, um, Noel is in Southern California and she's, they've obviously been threatened with the, the wildfires and really struggled with that and have friends who've lost homes and um, you know, it's what a blessing it is that we are all at home with our families instead of feeling like we have to be on the run um, or, you know, ready to throw our stuff in the car and drive away somewhere. Um, so there is this um, incredible gift that has has been offered um, through this whole whole experience. Noel, um, well, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the distinction between luxury and, and beauty, because I think that that's one of the main pieces of home, too, that there's um, all this intangible, beautiful things that people witness um, you know in, an, in a healthy family. Um, but there's also the, the tactile things, you know, we're incarnate beings. So anyway, I'd love for you to, to talk about that topic.
2: Yeah, no, I actually was just reading an interesting article in the New York Times. I think it was an old article, but it was about a woman who is in the home section. and she had spent years remodeling her home and poured so much time and money into it you know, and it was really kind of a, seemed like an excess of maybe materialism. And the irony was that at the end of the process, everyone who came into her home was a threat to her, the perfection she'd established. And it made her almost reject the material because she had a disordered relationship to it. And she sort of realized at the end, and just wanted her old simple home back. And I think that really kind of speaks to sort of that difference, the distinction between luxury and beauty, that luxury is sort of about ourselves. What can I get how can I make people view me in a certain way? Whereas true beauty is taking into account the importance of the material world. Cause like you said before, we are embodied beings. Our bodies are an integral part of ourselves. And so is the world around us um, in- important, but also not stopping there. So we don't stop at the material. We actually look beyond the material and see it as a means to drawing us toward closer to God a means for connecting us to our relationships around ourselves, and if we stop at the if we stop at the level of the material, we really get uh, paralyzed by it. Uh, and the opposite, op- obviously, is not good either. The approach of maybe an asceticism that isn't proper to the our state in life. So, you know, it could be that there, there's this great quote in the book about Aristotle said, "To live outside of civilization, you either have to be a god or a beast." And I think it's similar to to reject matter, you either have to be, you know, a monk who's called to transcend it or that type of thing, or you have to be more like a beast, like slovenly, maybe we're not care orderly about our things, maybe we're lazy, you know, so either extreme, you kind of lose the whole kit and caboodle, right? If you reject matter, or if you are materialistic, you know, you kind of lose it, the spiritual world and the material world. So really our goal being that we want true beauty, which is simple and which is finding that spiritual dynamic beyond and meaning within the things we surround ourselves with. And so the order for our homes and our care and the food we create, the glass of wine with our husband, all these things are avenues, beautiful gifts from God and avenues to connect us to each other and ultimately to him.
1: Yeah, I think the other um, piece about that too is just to recognize Um, just how incarnate we really are. And, you know, our churches are beautiful for a reason. And just to see sort of what happens at church happens in our homes and this echo, um, more on a material level, of course, um, in certain ways, but even the echo of nourishment, you know, we obviously, um, bread and wine are so important to our faith. And yet those are important things at at our our homes as well. um, Recognizing that, that value of those incarnate things. Um, but I'm, I've been really fascinated too, by the response that I've gotten from people. I'm, in fact, I, I talked to one husband, um, who I think he had gotten the book for his wife and he was saying, you know, for a long time, I was really kind of after my wife because she was always like worried about the throw pillows and trying to make our house look really perfect. And then, um, at one point he had a bunch of men over to pray and their, their priest, um, came as well. And as the priest was leaving, he said, you know, I love coming here because I always just feel so welcomed and, um, so, you know, there's just something about your home. Now, of course, it's not just because she just has those throat pillows. I'm sure she's a lovely woman and she has done an amazing job of, of showing her love through those very tangible things. Um, but I, I think that that's something that as Catholics, we have kind of, you know, it's sort of easy to sweep under the carpet, like that these are not important elements um, in our lives. And yet we all know the difference between being in a home where we feel like we're just in total chaos um, versus a home where we feel like things are kind of in order and there's there's a, a rhythm to them and um, a, a balance there and that kind of simplicity that Noel was refers, referring to in the beauty. So I think that there's a lot to be said um, for recognizing that, that those things really do offer us a foretaste of, of what heaven is like, that this can be kind of an icon of, of God's love um, in very tangible ways. And so I would love to see, you know that this work that we have done with theology of home sort of spark and inspire other women to do um other things with their gifts because i i think a lot of times we just are not um encouraging that because we almost feel guilty about it we almost feel like oh i shouldn't be spending my money this way and you know obviously within your means we don't we're not suggesting that um you know you have to be um spending thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars on on decorating your home or anything like that um, but there, there's, there's a lot to be said for the gifts that women have that we are clearly not using, um, to repopulate a sense of, of this marketplace, um, within, within the faith, because we have all these great tangible things. And, and I feel like in a certain respect, we have re- a representation of these eternal truths. We have gorgeous icons and things like that. But we also know from St. Augustine that the Holy Spirit will also give us, spirit of newness the thing there's a you know so ancient and yet so new that's who god is um so he wants to bring this something that feels fresh and not just um ancient to i think to um to our lives and i think
2: that's an important thing for us to be searching out for yeah and even just that um that very practical element that you know i i feel like carrie you have stories like this too but i remember when i first became a mom and i didn't know quite what how to how to do it and i felt short-tempered and my patience wasn't where it ought to have been. My instincts weren't where they ought to have been. And then it's really, we became dear friends with this really great couple and they were establishing their family too, but they were a little bit further along the way. And I just remember looking at how she handled her mothering and thinking when I was at my home, taking care of my home or taking care of the kids, I think well, how would she handle this? And just sort of try to use her as a model. And it retrained me in how to run my own d- domestic life in a way that I didn't really feel like I could hang my hat on before. And I think that, you know, that our, I don't think she realized that there was that power that she was, you know, instilling in me by just having me over in simple friendship, but that, but that truly we, we really learn from each other. And women, I think in particular, really want to see something embodied in order and, and particularly in a beautiful way that makes it compelling and draws us in and gives us kind of a model to look at.
1: And I, I think that's such a great point, Noelle. And, I, you know, I want to just make this one last point before we open it up for questions. But um, I think that's why the matriarchy has been so powerful is because there really is only one voice out there. And we're not offering and an, an modeling a different kind of way that women can live and they they can um have, you know, all of these great things that, that Catholicism offers um, to us. So I think that that's another reason why it's so important that we see, we understand that we have that kind of power just through our witness. And, and I love hearing stories too about, obviously we're at different seasons. So many of us are different seasons in our lives and we're not always doing the same thing, you know as soon as we have children. But um, uh, the other day I heard a story about a, a f- couple that the other children have left home um, so they will have couples with young children come over, and I guess they have a farm, and they will just, um, you know, make them dinner and let the children play outside and give them kind of a break, but also help mentoring them, not in a heavy-handed way, but in a way that really um, offers a, a different model because that's that truly is what's missing, I think, from from the culture so so much.
0: So mm-hmm. anyway, Rosemary, we will let you um, give us some questions. Uh, Thank you, Carrie and Noelle. We have some great questions coming in right now on YouTube. Um, I'm seeing a little bit of a common theme. Um, The first question I'm going to ask here from one of our viewers is, your book was a beautiful addition to a book club some friends and I hold monthly. We all enjoyed the book very much, but each of us had a similar question. What do some of your more practical suggestions look like for those of us with a limited income and living situation? Your homes are beautiful and located in scenic popular locations. It was a real treat to peek into your everyday lives, but we each felt some disconnect with our own practical realities. For example, the majority of us live in small apartments with spouses and children. Can you speak to the grittier but still practical details of making any home beautiful? Noelle, I'll let you start there. Um, My (laughs) home
1: was not featured in the book, I will say. Um, So I will let Noelle speak to it, she's much more uh, the designer
2: than, than I am at this point. It's a great question. And it's kind of a long, you know, the eternal struggle, the, (laughs) of a life trying to build a home. First of all, I think that it just doesn't come immediately. Right. Um, my mother-in-law always says shopping is either time or money. You can't have, you can't, you know, if you have the time, but you don't have the money, then you can kind of wait and do it slowly and find the bargains. If you have the money, well, then you just, you know, do it instantly. Um, but so for when we started out we had a 600 square foot apartment we had old hand-me-down furniture we got something free like off a sidewalk I mean it's just it's it's not you're not going to be where you want to be instantly but you can still be orderly you can still do cut flowers you know from the yard or I think editing things down and bringing in uh, some you know flowers or fruit in a bowl taking those little efforts of extra care can go a long way just and also recognizing that this is what I have and I don't need to, I need to be grateful for what I have. So this is what I have to work with. How can I make this beautiful? You know, it's it's sort of like there's, I always think about home decorating as analogous to fashion. So I don't wanna go follow the trends of fashion that don't work for me. I want to do what is going to bring out, you know be flattering for me and, and make me feel okay and pull together. And for a home, you know, similarly, you don't want—you're not going to make a 600 square foot apartment look like a Tuscan villa or something, you know. Our house was built in 1960, so we work with what we have. Um, but then, I think practically speaking, I have—I think maybe 70 percent of the furniture in my living room I found through Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. Um, I have one—I invested in a couch. I kind of think sofas and rugs or something to invest in. That said, I don't didn't have the money for a beautiful Oriental rug. So I got a jute rug from Ikea and then I layer cow hides over them because they don't stain, they're super kid friendly. Um, I remember one time seeing this magazine, we first moved in, we had this long white wall and I saw this beautiful uh, home with a long white credenza built in and then the long shelf. And I thought I can't hire a, a cabinetry maker to build that at, at my budget, but I got a couple of white cabinets and then I just got a long floating shelf from Ikea and had it fits the size. And anyway, so just trying to draw inspiration from that type of thing without feeling like you have to actually buy those things and be at that level at any moment. And also knowing that it's just it's just gonna take time. You build your home slowly, it's gonna look more collected that way. As you get older, you sort of figure out what what, You really like, and what is just you let the trends kind of fall by the wayside and figure out what you is beautiful to in your eye, and all sorts of tips like that. Hand me downs I love having old historical pieces from you know an old aunt, or you know, I think that really kind of creates some history in your home, and also you know, a a sense throws into relief kind of the more modern pieces that sometimes we tend to find because that's what we can get. And so, yeah, and Plus, there's so much information online now that so many tutorials, and I think there's a wealth of information that we can use to be inspired from. And I think our book, you know, we really wanted it to be beautiful. That was important to us. And that, that's what I want to see. I want to see things that are inspirational. We didn't want to, you know, just practically speaking, have phot- photography of um, something that was dark or, you know, something like that. So we wanted to be able to have it be something that might inspire people, but also not discourage them. So certainly we would not want the takeaway to be any type of discouragement. And I hope that that wasn't the case with the readers.
1: You know, I would say I actually we haven't held up the book yet. Um, I think anybody's seen the book um, who's not familiar with it. Um, But the one thing I would add too is, um, you know, there's there's certain things that are just going to be meaningful to us. And um, I had a, a lamp that had been my father's when he was sick with pancreatic cancer. And he died and i i just kept it and felt like it was something that was really important for me to keep even though it was you know it was kind of a kitschy night light of our lady and um you know unfortunately it was broken and i i replaced it um because i just loved having that connection um with his life but i think um gratefully i had the the privilege of, of living in rome and was able to collect some really beautiful pieces there but you also can find some great spiritual art now online for really inexpensive you know replicas for the of them or you know things that are really worth saving up for, and um, we have a couple of pieces that I I've been kind of astounded that I was really drawn to, but they had um, the the infant of Saint John the Baptist in them, and um, our latest our child is something of a miracle child um, is named John, and so it was just really beautiful to see how the Holy Spirit was seeding that idea in in our hearts and in our in our minds that the notion of being close to Saint John the Baptist and and using that name for our son. So there's gonna be promptings that you're gonna get also um, just in your faith walk and journey and um, things that you're gonna be drawn to that may not be um, popular or they may feel kitschy or whatnot but I think those are the kinds of things that it's, it's quite all right and in fact, it's probably important for you to sort of craft your own um, family story based on those saints that are speaking to you in, in different ways.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Carrie um, and Noel. It seems that we have a little bit of a side discussion going on in the chat right now about the role of feminism um, within the home and within the church. One of the specific questions is as a college student who loves to talk and promote traditional femininity roles, womanhood, how can I connect to women my age who are not yet married or have kids um, and infiltrated with feminism um, and the beautiful role of traditional value in womanhood and motherhood? um, I think this is a great question for you.
1: Yeah, no, this is one of those things that has taken me a long time to find the answer to, so, um, I have done the hard work, and I've got the the proof on my knees to show it, um, and a lot of prayer. I think the the real answer is to not really dive into the polemics, but to to really be a witness to to it. I think, um, you know, unless the, the, the polemics come up, I don't think I think the much better way is to be an incredible friend and to really witness to women what it means to be feminine um, and what it means to be, um, you know, ultimate, ultimately femininity is this capacity to shelter others, but also to help them become who God made them to be, to, to help them find ways to flourish. Um, and it's, it's not about our egos, it's, it's about service and serving others and mimicking Christ in that way. And that's really where we're gonna be the happiest. Um, And so many of the the arguments, I think, they they get tedious. They aren't necessarily fruitful. Um, They aren't necessarily helpful. I I think there's so many of these things that people can't be talked out of. Um, So I am much more inclined to, to, again, go with the, the model of finding common ground, finding things like talking about home or... Um, life experiences that you share or hobbies that you share, those kinds of things, um, and really building true friendships, um, but also making it clear that um, these kinds of ideological differences are are not fundamentally deal breakers. I mean, they're not deal breakers in our families. How many of us have family members that are, we are at completely different um, corners with them Um, on so many political or theological points and yet that we know we're still family um so I think that that's that's been helpful for me with my own immediate family extended family but also to recognize that this is you know friendship goes deeper than these things and is going to be there because the politics is going to change and and ideologies are going to change um but if you have these sort of core values and and this core capacity um to live out your own values, then those are gonna be the things that the people are gonna be drawn to. And then when there are struggles, they're gonna say, you know, I know this person is trustworthy or will tell me the truth, I can go to that person. And um, so I think that that's really the much better way to try and tackle it rather than um, necessarily dealing with the polemics. Because again, the, the voice is so strong in the culture today. And I think that it's, it's, it's really hard to break through that with a new paradigm um, with a new model, um, just on your own. And, um, so I think that this is one of the reasons why Catholics in general just need to start speaking up and, and showing authentic witness instead of just fighting it out verbally.
2: I think that's right. And I would just add to it that I have dear, dear friends who we fall on all totally opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think there's, um, it's sort of an art that you learn over time and through practice and, through humility, which you know is a lifelong struggle for all of us, um, but I think finding the things that I really admire in them is very helpful because people don't. I think people knee-jerk assume that if they become friends with someone who's a devoutly religious Catholic person, that there's going to be some level of being judged or judgmentalism. You know, that's that's. I hear that all the time. That that's the biggest the, their biggest concern is that you know that Christian people will judge them. Um, and, I, and I think as much as we want to, we can, we need to diffuse that because really, I don't think that that's how Christ made people feel. I think he made them feel seen and he made them feel known and loved. And so our friends need to know that first and foremost, our friendship is not dependent on us trying to com- convince them of something, but rather just that we see their value. And that can happen just through truly being interested in their lives and seeing the, the good and the beautiful things that they do. I mean, some of my secular women friends are just naturally incredibly vir- virtuous and lovely people are talented and trying to sort of approach that with a uh, aura of humility and and respect and, you know, kind of an eagerness to affirm those, those, that beauty and that goodness that we see in them. Um, and, uh, you know i think that there's a tendency in the culture now to kind of politicize everything everything has got got to be about politics it invades every aspect of our lives and our sports and now the coronavirus is all political you know and that's you know some things of course are going to be political but it's become so pervasive and you know we believe in something that's higher than politics and so it doesn't mean that politics isn't important it certainly is but we can't get caught in that trap of being defensive in a posture of you know ready to attack and ready to be attacked but rather to be disarming so that was just something I would add to that conversation, which is a good conversation.
0: Noelle, you um, already spoke a little bit about the practical tips of, on how, you know, the average woman can be draw inspiration from these elegant magazines and apply them to their, to their life. But can you talk a little bit more about how making a ho- how, talk a little bit about how a single person can make a, you know, make a home, you know, if they're living with roommates, et cetera.
2: Sure. I mean, and that is a trick. We, we, in our book, we do talk about, you know, home is going to look all, like all different sorts of stages. We sort of t- tend to think of it as family life because that's where the stage we're in now. But we talk about elderly people, you know, having to leave their home to move into, you know, a, a nursing home or, you know, something, some other an apartment or to downsize. But also, um, I I talk about when I when I first met Carrie. Actually, we were living in Steubenville. We were going to grad school for philosophy there, and I moved into this really horrifically ugly apartment. (laughs) It was furnished, and the the carpet was like '70s chocolate brown, and had like a vinyl brown sofa. Everything was brown and dirty. (laughs) And I remember I was like, I don't know how to make this a home. And I threw a sheet over the couch. I was like, There, we're done. Um, But you know, eventually, (laughs) was that. We didn't spend very much time. No, <laughs> it wasn't a pleasant place. Uh, and I don't think I ever actually made that a home, although I did end up embedding myself in the community and finding such meaningful relationships. And so, it, but I, I never figured out how to make that dingy brown apartment a home. So what my, I, I mean, how to, if you're of limited means and you're in some place you don't love, I think, well, Carrie can talk about St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, who found great beauty and comfort in, a temporary and tricky situation that she was in so maybe carrie you want to talk about that
1: yeah no i i mean i think this is one of the greatest stories i i've read about a woman making a home um and it was when her husband was dying they were actually um went over to italy he had tuberculosis and he they had to be quarantined it was the two of them and their daughter and basically they had like a, a water pitcher and a, and a brick um fireplace or something i mean it was just so minimalist and he's dying and you know, wind is, and the chill is coming in through the brick walls and they have to be there for like two months. And um, anyway, she just talked about how it was, you know, bare bones. And yet this was exactly what she needed to minister to her husband's soul as he was dying. And He ended up dying six days after they um, were able to leave that quarantine. Um, so it, it's, you know, kind of a tragic story in a certain respect, but at the same time, it makes you realize like, if she can do that and win soul's over with want to soul over with, you know, what we would all, all think of as way below poverty level, sub, you know, level, we, and few of us can imagine living like that, um, you know, how much more we can do um, when we're single. And I think that there's a lot to be said, too, for even if you're, you have a small home, or um, kind of creating a home with friend, friends, or um, inviting a few people over if you're, you don't have much room, or even, you know, I've heard of, you um, There's a mutual friend that Noel and I have that he has friends that they all go to the same restaurant um, every couple of weeks. They get the back room with a big table and they all just spend time together. um, Sort of creating a sense of home among their friends as well because they're all single and living in apart, tiny apartments and that kind of thing in New York. So um, yeah, I think that there's a lot can be done. I think there's also a, a big, a lot of room for those of us who are married to invite single people to our home for dinner. I know this is one of the things that when I was single, I lived, was living in DC in, in graduate school and there was a family down in Charlottesville that would, I would go down there all the time. And there was three generations that lived on the property and it was just this amazing experience to be included in that family life. And, um, that was really transforming because I know that those experiences, um, it just gave me an opportunity to know myself better, but also to see, again, this modeling, how a, a, a family can function. Um, so I think that there's a lot of generosity um, and creativity that people can, can bring to the table. I mean, we can certainly pray about this. How do we make our own, um, our own homes a home for us, but also a place where people feel um, like Noel said earlier, where they feel seen, where they feel loved, where they feel like they're um, becoming more of who they're meant to be. That's um, really vital.
2: Yeah. And I think also just getting back to that luxury versus beauty thing. I mean, I think we underestimate how much simple beauty can kind of trump any type of material luxury. I was talking to a man who had been a music producer and he had all the money in the world and all these fancy cars. And all he wanted to do was go visit his friend all the time who he and his wife had a super humble two bedroom apartment and but he—he he, there was intentionality put in there and love put in there. And I think even if you live by yourself or live with roommates, just being intentional with where you are and putting that kind of love into it, you know, that can, he, that, there's a reason why he was drawn to that place more than he was to this, you know, luxurious home that he'd established for himself. You know, I re, and so I really think that it's wherever, whatever state you're in, wherever you are, a little intentionality and love and some care and order can really transform a place.
1: And charity, I would would be the last thing I would add too. In terms of, um, you know, it goes both ways. We can we can mentor single people, but I think sing, single people also have a lot of time at their disposal that a family doesn't have. So if a woman has a baby, offer to bring a meal. You know, those are things that might feel daunting, but I think um, those are incredible gifts that can be be given as well. That also just stretch us in in really beautiful ways, and and can knit a community together in in ways that nothing else does.
0: Noelle, you touched on this a little bit with your answer just before, but we have a great question here. If building a home, even with the intention of creating a sacred space, requires resources like money and possessions, how do you navigate building a home while avoiding materialism and the idol of Pinterest? Is it possible to overinvest in creating a beautiful home that reflects the internal? How do you suggest a homemaker decide how to spend resources of time and money on the look and feel of a home? What has worked for you both?
2: That's a great question. I mean, I think that I would start from an internal look at, I always think about, am I starting from a place of gratitude or am I starting from a place of, you know, that the conversation today oftentimes is, you know, following your dream. And I think we talk about our dream house and, you know, and it's sort of about what's going to serve us. Whereas if you start from a place of gratitude, it has you look at what you've been given and it gives you a mission to sort of transform it. I'm going to take whatever God's giving me and make it the best I can possibly do. So, I, so I, I really, I guess I would just try to say that you know, if if we interiorly order ourselves in the correct way, where you know, you're if you're going to get a, pin, a Pinterest obsession, which we're all prone to, anyone can fall into that type of thing, that's really not coming from a place of gratitude, right? It's coming from a place of um, either maybe envy or. Over em- a disordered emphasis on having to ha- transform things just right now and make it just like the way I'm seeing it in this magazine, or you know, that so it really it's really got to start from our interior state. You know, what's going on inside, and how are we, you know, thinking about this situation? Um, and 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 honestly, I don't think that it has to be again a, a, a means a means based thing. I mean, I think obviously you have to be able to afford your home versus rent or mortgage but I mean, plants, I think, you know, everyone's using plants now. I've I've noticed there's been a real uptick in people just explosion of indoor plants. And I think for a reason, you know, they're inexpensive, we can care for them and they bring that life and that kind of vibrancy, that sense of verdancy into a home. So, and that's not a, you know, a luxury item really. Um, So yeah, I, I don't know, does that answer the question?
1: I just would add too, I think we have this fabulous example of monasteries. I mean, these places for centuries are are just beautiful, and it's because they understood, you know going back to Saint Benedict, um, you know who established the monastic system. I mean he's he he recognized that like Noel said, all of these things are gifts, and we need to take care of them and and tend to them um, because they they are a gift from God, and we need to um, treat them with respect and and whatnot and but also recognize hospitality and uh, all of those virtues that go into why we have these possessions um, instead of it just being for vanity's sake or you know because we're keeping up with the Joneses or, or whatever. So um, all of those things are, are, are hard to wrestle with um, but I don't think that, um, I think materialism is something that we are certainly prone to but we're also prone to um, not seeing the value in the material things as well and trying to going the opposite extreme um, to kind of an asceticism that maybe we're not called to as well. So I think those are finding that balance
0: is always a hard thing. The next question I have here is very design specific. Mm-hmm. Um, the user is asking what elements make the front entrance feel the most welcoming to guests and others, a seat or bench, a lamp or mirror, a nice rug or a little console table to place their keys, a standing rack to hang a coat. Um, so do you have any guidance on, on to answer that question? It's all you, Noelle. Oh, you're, you need to unmute, Noelle. No, yep. try again.
2: Can you hear me? Yep. Yes. It's so specific to the particular house, it's hard to say there's necessarily a formula, but I, I my mother-in-law always actually says a lamp in the entryway she loves. And I, I, I don't have room for one in my entryway, but I do see that if there's room, I do think that's a lovely thing with a little table. Um, we have a plant right in front of our front door. It's um, since I don't remember. It's the, I think the nickname for it is mother-in-law tongue. It's it's very sturdy, hardy plant, and I like just walking up to that. I do have a little rug, um, kind of a cl- color-blocked rug. Um, painting your front door, I think it's really neat when houses, if it makes sense for them, for the house in particular, to have an interestingly painted door. You know, red doors. There's some history and meaning behind that. That's supposed to be a sign of welcoming, um, but I've seen beautiful ones in blue or black. Uh, yeah, I think it's have a place to plop things, I'm big on having functional beauty. So like if you find you're always dropping the mail on a certain spot, then put a lovely basket there. Or if you're always putting your sunglasses or keys there, can you have a lovely tray? Anytime you can kind of corral things, it's going to give an instant feeling of sort of order, even though you're still plopping the same things down there. Um, candle. Carrie's got a beautiful candle line. I recommend those. And also, bring and your friends over, take a picture of your entryway and then look at the picture. Sometimes we can see things more objectively when we see it on a screen. It just kind of helps to give us a, some, a bit of distance and then we can reevaluate it that way.
0: Carrie, do you have anything you want to add or we want to move no, on? I think, to question? I'm going to definitely leave that. Noel answered it beautifully. So. Perfect. Um, Okay. Our next question is, um, could you both um, please comment on how your prayer life has been influenced, um, has influenced your view of hospitality and welcoming and building a real home? Um, That's a great question. I like that question a lot. Um,
1: I think, you know, this is one of those things that's, First of all, it depends a lot on season of life because um, I, you know, we went through the stage where we had four kids really quickly, quick succession and um, I, nobody was coming to my house. I, you know, I was not inviting anybody over. Um, but I, I think that um, it, it, without the prayer life, I don't think that I would I would view hospitality as very important. Um, I think I would think of it more in terms of just entertaining and being fun but not having kind of a, a deeper meaning. And I think that it, um, I've, in some ways I've forced myself to um, invite people over and do things more readily because I, I think that there's a power certainly from um, the influence of children and just you know what comes out of the mouths of babes and, uh, I know we've had one couple that um, they weren't able to have children. And one night they were with us on a Saturday night, we say a special series of prayers. And you know the wife was in tears by the end of these prayers because she just was so touched by the, the beauty of it. Um, and I think that that's the kind of thing that um, is an answer to prayer because it makes me understand why we do these things and that there, there's something bigger um, than just me cleaning up my house and having people over um, for dinner and going to the work to make the dinner. Um, but there's something that's, that's much bigger than, than these realities. Um, so yeah, I, I think that there's a lot to be said in terms of just the understanding the witness and um, like we were talking about earlier mentoring and, and a lot of this can be done too. You know, I think we feel like we have to have a, a perfect home in order to entertain people. And I've kind of found the point where I, I make one blanket apology for everything. that's not just so, and then just get on with, dinner and you know there's only so much cleaning that you can do at times so um that that's sort of my way of skirting all of it (laughs) letting things be as they are
2: that's so smart I the only thing I would add to that is that I feel like there was a transition for me through my prayer life where I realized that I had been understanding hospitality to be about me (laughs) it was sort of I was performing it was a performative thing where I wanted to be chic and I wanted to impress my guests and I realized at some point how 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 backwards that was, and it was really through my prayer life and through work with a spiritual director that, um, you know, being performative is really unappealing. Actually, paradoxically, it actually it's more repugnant than it is <laughs> attractive to your guests. So, you, you're wanting people to think well of you, and actually, what you're you're just becoming sort of self-absorbed. So. Um, I think the, that's what the prayer life gives you, right? It gives you, or reorients you outside of yourself into a place of service. And in the, the, the beauty of the faith is that in that reorientation, you become happier. You know, you're really miserable when you're performing and you really learn happiness through sincerity and through service and through, you know, making it about the other person and not yourself which is the true meaning of hospitality, of course. It's supposed to be about the other.
0: Well, we have time for one more question. Um, the question I have here is, why do you think there has been such an emphasis on a return to domestic life and homemaking, but still a rejection or downplay of the role of the homemaker? Why is there this disconnect?
1: And that's why you're gonna have to read our next book. <laughs> um, actually, Noelle and I just finished um, our the second Theology of Home. It's called Theology of Home, um, The Spiritual Art of Homemaking. Um, and we really tackle this, this topic a lot, you know, why is this? And Noel touched on it a little bit. Um, part of it has to do with, of course, because homemaker, you know, if you look at the rhetoric that has come from um, radical feminism, uh, you, you've got so, you know, there's so many crazy things that are said, you know, what woman has to be mentally ill to enjoy this, you know, um, that children are just brought up, they don't need mothers. You know, there's all kinds of this, this rhetoric that's been floating around for a very long time. Um, and then people have just really taken to heart. Um, so the, the the message out there is, of course, that that uh, being a homemaker is a, a bad thing. Um, and yet, I I think this trend for all these homemade things is because people are longing for the values that come from a homemaker. They just don't know that that's where it comes from. So um, I think that that, that is really um, the disconnect. I think the other um, piece is just that it isn't, it, because it isn't, Appreciated in the culture, it's a very hard and difficult thing to do, um, to always be sort of swimming against the current, um, and and that's another reason why you know a book like this I think speaks to women because it's you know, you can just kind of you know luxuriate in it instead of feeling like you have to pick through it and feel like there's things that you're not going to agree with or that are going to offend you or whatever. Um, so I think that those are that's really what what is behind it. Um, no, I'm sure you have more
2: to add to that. Oh, that was a beautiful answer. I think you nailed it. (laughs) And I think we're running out of time. I don't know if you want to do one more or just.
0: Uh, Yeah, here, let's sneak in one more. Um, Carrie, you kind of touched on this a little bit. And at the beginning of the talk, you talked about you know, women aren't seeing in the grocery store magazines and journals that really speak to their faith, um, and their home life. Um, and you talked a little bit about, you know, Magnolia journal might be the closest thing. Um, one of our speakers, um, is asking, you know, you know, if you have plans for another book in this vein or magazine or journal, uh, have there been any thoughts on that?
1: Well, Noel and I also host, um, theologyofhome.com, which is our current, effort at a magazine and getting great content to catholic women um it's published monday through fridays and it's ten eight to ten articles um catholic pieces and secular pieces that speak to the heart of a woman um i think we we cherry pick them from all all kinds of media out there um we would love to do a lot more original content and have um, something much more robust um i think that that what I'm finding is it takes a long time for people to sort of get their mind wrapped around this and really see how much women have been affected by the culture. Um, but if you look at even the pro-life movement, you know, so much of it, what we're dealing with abortion is are the symptoms of the culture and not really healing the heart of, of um, women and helping them find an, a new avenue to think about themselves and their fertility and whatnot. Um, so that's one of the things that, that we would love to see. Um, But unfortunately, you know, we don't have huge bank accounts to make these things (laughs) happen. Um, But yes, we we would love to see a a real magazine. I think we have all the pieces um, that could make something gorgeous, um, even at a seasonal level. I mean, think about all the things that go into uh, the holidays for Catholics, um, whether it's Easter, Christmas, or you know, there's there's so many different things. Um, So I think that it's, it's something we're praying about, and we'll see what doors open and close. But in the meantime. Um, yeah, we have theologyofhome.com that, that we would love to have um, people join us there. Um, and then, I, as Noel mentioned, I've started a, uh, we've started a line of products, too, um, that are very Catholic, candles, um, cutting boards, posters, all kinds of things that um, to, to sort of start populating the marketplace,
0: uh, again, with um, things that can, can decorate and enhance our homes. Wonderful, that's so excited. I know I can speak on behalf of everyone watching here that we're excited to see what can come out of this project. Um, Thank you, Noel and Carrie for engaging us on this topic. Uh, it was such a a beautiful conversation and I know you gave some wonderful tips that I personally found very helpful and want to implement into my own home Um, for those of you who don't have Theology of the Home um, the hard copy book at home you can purchase this book um, at the CIC through our um, store online so please go to our website it's linked in the menu bar and support the CIC bookstore Uh, thank you again so much for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful evening and if you liked this video which I know you all did um, be sure to Subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on social media. And have a great rest of the evening. Bye, Carrie. Bye, Noelle. Thank you so much. Time. Bye.